0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Not all of us wrote how to cook everything. My thing would be like how to cook some things just okay and probably not for your kids. That's
1: actually what I wanted to call. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Dinner SOS, the show where we help you save dinner or whatever you're cooking. I'm Chris Morocco, Food Director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious. Today, we have an incredibly special guest joining me to answer some questions from our mailbag. It's Mark Bittman. Hey, Mark. Ooh, hi. (laughs) So exciting. Oh, I'm excited. A few weeks ago, I joined Mark and his daughter Kate on his podcast, Food with Mark Bittman, and we got into it about recipe development and just generally nerding out about food. In case you're unfamiliar with his work, Mark wrote the instant classic cookbook, How to Cook Everything, 25 years ago. He's also written many, many other cookbooks, and he was a columnist and recipe developer at the New York Times for years. After chatting with Mark on his show, I feel like I know him about a thousand percent better than I did before. But as we sat down to answer some listener questions together, I still had a few unresolved questions of my own. How did it come to pass that you wrote so many cookbooks? Like, who were you cooking for? And who was doing the cleanup? Like, how many dishwashers (laughs) have you gone through in your life? And I mean, like, the appliance, not, you know, people.
1: It's like Mark Bittman, Man of Mystery.
0: Well, I was editor
1: of Cook's Magazine, which no one who's listening even knows what it is, but it was the predecessor of Cook's Illustrated. Uh, okay. Yep. Back in the 80s. And I had already been writing about food for eight or 10 years by then. And I had a lot of books in me. I thought I had a lot of books in me, but I couldn't sell any of them. And then I was writing all these fish stories for the Washington Post as it happened. There was just an editor there who appreciated the way i wrote and i did slash do know a lot about fish and seafood and um this agent called and said you should write a fish cookbook and fish books are not supposed to get any attention and they're not supposed to sell well right but this one did both and it won both an iacp and a james beard award so it's amazing so then the same publisher asked me to do how to cook everything and that that itself is a very long story and uh kind of funny one.
0: Were you cooking just from home when you were developing that book?
1: It all happened because my first wife, Karen Barr, was an awesome cook and among the people who taught me how to cook. And she was working full time and I was trying to be a writer. So I was home and I just kind of took over cooking and was cooking for her and for our first kid and later for our second kid as well. And it just went on. And I think the interesting an interesting thing is that it really took me 10 or 12 years to do the work that I needed to do to do that fish book. Like it was just so organic. It just kind of built on itself. And then, how to cook everything, the publisher said, We want you to do the new joy of cooking, yeah. what amounts to the new joy of cooking. And you need to turn it in in a year or something oh like gosh. that. You know, it's like, I believe that. it's like <laughs> that's a thousand recipes. Yeah. But You know, as it turns out, a lot of those recipes are things that people like me, people who cook routinely, have cooked and know how to do anyway. I mean, I never said, this is the best chicken in a pot ever. It was always sort of, here's chicken in a pot. I've made it. It's really good. No, I did not cook it 14 times so that I could claim it was (laughs) the best one. And I've never really done that. It's always been efficient, quick for the family, not show-offy kind of cooking. It started that way and it continued that way. I got lucky in many, many ways, but one way in which I I got lucky is that I was kind of writing at a time when there was a little bit of a transition first away from home cooking and then, oh my God, no one is cooking at home or no one ever showed me how to cook. How am I going to learn how to cook? And how to cook everything kind of hit that wave of, People who'd grown up in homes with a lot of microwave cooking and a Mm -hmm. lot of convenience food and takeout food and so on, and and then this generation of people that was born—I don't know, starting in 1980, I suppose, somewhere around there—was like, "It'd be nice to, might be nice to learn how to cook something." And then there's this been this kind of wave of people who are actually interested in cooking, which that was lucky for me. I was never really in a test kitchen situation except once in a while in sort of emergencies like we need 20 recipes in 2 weeks kind of thing yeah. but if it otherwise it just it flowed it still does in a way
0: i mean it's so interesting to hear you talk about that because you know i think your process reflects the fact that like you said you're what you cook day in day out you know these things are your part of your repertoire and so when you go to put a recipe down on paper you're not starting from scratch, and you know, interesting. I, I think I'd missed that part, you know, of your history uh, in terms of w- working for Cook's Magazine, the, the the precursor to Cook's Illustrated, and there it's like the entire process is all about, you know, hey, we, we cook chicken in a pot 13 times to figure out right. the best way to da-da-da, right? Um, well,
1: notice I'm not there anymore.
0: <laughs> no, so. I know. Well, right. And sometimes in the past, I've thought, wow, what luxury, though, to to spill that much ink in service to one thing. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this on your podcast. You know, I, I mean, I have had some of those occasions to do a crazy deep dive into something Incredibly specific, but I just I, the 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 thing that I'm struck most by is is you know looking back and you know seeing the joy of cooking really as the sort of template for what you were trying to do, and it's easy to look back and say, oh well, how to cook everything. You know, looking back, it seems like an aura of inevitability about it, but. But but can you imagine these days like the hubris of sort of setting out and hearing yourself say, oh, I'm going to set out to to make a new Joy of Cooking type of cookbook, you know, that's literally going to set a new benchmark for an entire new generation of home cooks. I mean, well, yeah. I think that's so interesting that at the end of the day, you're just cooking what you like.
1: What was funny about everything I never would have pitched? Oh, I'm going to replace Joy of Cooking on, and I thought they were crazy. But you know, they came to me and they offered me a contract, and they paid me fairly, and it was an amazing opportunity. And I was talking to Dory Greenspan, who's an old friend, mm-hmm. yesterday, and she said, "Oh, I remember you in 1997, and you were really bummed out because." you were convinced it was never going to get published. And if it did, it would be a failure and so on and so on. So I was a kind (laughs) of nervous wreck about it because I appreciated the hubris that it took (laughs) to call something, how to cook everything and to say, Oh, it's the new joy of cooking. I think I was lucky in that almost no one was writing big general cookbooks in those days. And and a way I've continued to be lucky, because people do not tackle that. People want to be specialized. I get that they want to be specialized. There are sort of ground-up general cookbooks, but no one's gotten behind something the way that my publisher and I got behind how to cook everything. And it was also, this was 1998, it was when Amazon first started being a force, and we got sort of lucky with Amazon and mm-hmm. sold a lot of books all at once. And then I stayed on the road doing publicity for How to Cook Everything for two years. It was just, it was the right time of my life to do that anyway. And the other thing is that I became a weekly columnist for the time. So I yeah. wasn't just, here's Mark Bittman who wrote this good fish book now with a general cookbook. I was, here's Mark Bittman, award winning author with a new cookbook. He's also a weekly columnist for the New York Times. So, yeah. It was a lot of things combined, and and people were willing to have me as a guest on almost any show and willing to talk to me, wanting to talk to me, and it worked.
0: Oh, wow. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I Listen, I mean, this still is a, a sort of like a rose-colored era for me, you know, in terms of media in general and food media in particular. Uh, and yet, I, you know, in, in my role overseeing recipe content for Bon Appetit and Epicurious, you know, I'm constantly struck by the power of simple ideas and food and really, truly where our audience is at in terms of skill level and knowledge. You know, it's it's kind of amazing. Like, you know, you're constantly teaching people these foundational skills. And so, anywho, I'm in awe of the career you've had and it seems like you've been able to do it very much on your own terms to a large extent. One last fun question, but with regards to you, are people, do do you find people are intimidated to cook for you? Like, you know, like, don't want to even have you over for dinner?
1: Let's say that the people who are not intimidated to cook for me and do want to have me over for dinner are not in the majority. (laughs) Uh, But I appreciate them twice as much. I feel like people are very... Non judgmental when you invite them over for dinner. People like being invited yeah. to anyone else's house for dinner and they like having the kind of burden of the responsibility for dinner lifted. It's like eating totally. out, only you're at your friend's house.
0: Right. So it's and even I better. You're not getting kicked out like in two hours. You're not hours. getting
1: kicked out. You're not paying. I think you kind of you suspend judgment to a large extent. You're just like, whatever. Great. We got to eat together. We're at your house. was so nice of you. Da, 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 da. And that's how I feel when people invite me to dinner. I'm just a person eating. Like, I go eat bad pizza just like everybody else. So, you know, if you're going to cook for me, I appreciate that. And I'm sure you're going to try and it's going to be great. But but some people, yes, I think I've probably not been invited for dinner <laughs> Many times because people, just, or
0: maybe they don't like
1: me. So there's always well, that that's possibility. not a possibility.
0: It's just got to be that they intentionally left you off the list. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, Mark and I will answer some listener questions. Here at Dinner SOS, we love tackling your kitchen issues. But what if I told you there's a way to rescue dinner before it turns into an emergency? With expert insights from the Test Kitchen, cooking and entertaining tips, and a treasury of over 50,000 recipes, Bon Appetit and Epicurious are your lifelines to rescue any meal. And right now, our listeners can get 20% off an annual digital subscription including access to the user-friendly Epicurious app. Just use code SOS20 at bonappetit.com. That's sos 20 for a 20% discount on an annual digital subscription to Bon Appetit and Epicurious. Happy cooking. And don't worry, I'll still be here if your dinner plan self-destructs. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, Mark, are you ready to answer some listener questions? I mean,
1: I'm ready to try to answer you some You don't have a choice, questions. so... <laughs>
0: All right, the first question is a voicemail we got from listener Ellen, who's in Brooklyn. Uh, Let's roll the tape, Michelle.
2: It is camping season. It's summertime, which means I'm going on the road with my husband and our five-year-old. And the wonderful after-school preschool teacher at my kid's old preschool organizes these huge group camping trips. So my emergency is figuring out how to cook in a group with a bunch of kids under six. So I'm thinking what can be prepped ahead? What can be stored happily and safely in a cooler? What can feed a crowd of picky kids and easy cleanup afterwards? Because I got like a Tupperware full of soapy water with a dead bug in it and I don't want to clean a lot. (laughs) So those are some of the parameters of my dinner emergency for camping in the woods
0: <sighs> Not easy. Do you camp,
1: Mark? I have camped. I haven't camped recently, but yeah. But you I, have camp. I have pictures of me making pasta with cauliflower on a one burner butane stove in the middle of the woods not from not that long ago. That was fun. Wow.
0: Yeah. Okay, well that's great because I don't think I've camped, you know, in like 25 years.
1: But this is not a camping question. This is a, like, how do you do a picnic for 20, it sounds like 20 people. They're not going to start, you know, grilling lamb chops on this trip. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I mean, the thing is, like, this sounds so terrifying to me. Like, I find it hard enough just to cook for my kids in a kitchen with a massive refrigerator on hand, you know? No, you don't. I, I do. Honestly, Mark, you've, you, like, you have no idea. I just... I I really struggle with this. And yet, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, cooking pasta on uh, some kind of camp burner or whatever. Because I do think that there is something about when you eat hot food and you're out, whatever, outside, out in the woods, there is a magic to even the simplest foods, perhaps. Mm -hmm. There's a gloss on that whole experience that feels like orders of magnitude greater than just Tuesday night dinner at home. Do you think that's fair to say? I
1: mean, I was so proud of myself for that pasta with cauliflower. I can't tell you. Yes, I mean, it was see, there so you go. Ex- it was really exciting. And I suppose I was bragging and saying... <laughs> I I did that, but it was really, I thought that was an event. And, I, and if you go, especially backpacking, but even car camping, you have limited ingredients. You have to think of stuff ahead of time. You're not going to have everything you have at home. You're going to forget something and so on. And it does make it kind of fun.
0: Do you want to try to solve yeah, this Yeah, let's problem? actually solve it. And, and I guess we're not going to solve it with lamb chops. I mean,
1: I would solve it with not cooking at all. I would like... Really? I would do marshmallows on the fire or hot dogs on the fire or something. And I would bring every other single thing, tons of stuff that was made at home and not even try to deal with this thing. It just so much potential for things going wrong.
0: You're thinking hot dogs on a stick.
1: I'm thinking, well, not, maybe not on a stick, but I'm thinking, you know, have some cooking experience, but really, really basic. And then everything else gets I mean, literally potato salad, macaroni salad, coleslaw kind of
0: thing. I think that's brilliant. And honestly, like, then (laughs) again, I'm the person who would probably would do the hot dogs on a stick because my kids would probably actually be really into that.
1: First of all, you're going to try to have to be accommodating for various diets, which because in a group of 20, you know, there's going to be someone who is a vegan or doesn't eat this or wants to eat, only eats that. Even chicken wings is going to be – for a lot of people, if you're building a fire or you have a little stove, it starts to get very complicated very quickly.
0: Right. So, not even like boiling a big pot of water for pasta because you're just, I, I it's don't like, see it. Can you even put a big pot on like one of those tiny little burners? Right, or... I
1: don't see. I had trouble making, I mean, I was backpacking, not car camping, but I had trouble making pasta with cauliflower for two because it was really a complicated thing with one burner. And
0: Mark you know, Bittman. True life revealed. I, I mean, well, listen, I think that that's smart. Some kind of low stakes cooking, but that the entire meal isn't hinging on and and bring stuff right. from home.
1: Right. I think of it as an augmented picnic rather than I'm going to cook in the woods with 20 kids or whatever. I would think I'm going to make enough food for everybody. And we'll do a little cooking for fun. And really, you could even skip the hot dogs and do marshmallows. But, you know, you can do both easily enough.
0: Love it. Just get a lot of sticks. All right. So our next question comes from listener Betty. She writes... For the last few years, I've been going to a farmer's market that sells goat and lamb. I've been buying it, and I think it's delicious, but I don't know much about it. What cuts should I buy? How should I cook them? Any advice?
1: This actually I feel some expertise in. Do you? Um,
0: I'm not a big—when I was—like before I went to college, I did a National Outdoor Leadership School semester course, and as part of it, when we were in Kenya— we butchered a couple of goats and it was, it was tough, you know, like seeing their little hooves on the sand afterwards. Like, you know, I, I just, I really, I had a hard time with that, with the whole experience. And I really haven't eaten goats since then. But this is something that you're feeling good about in terms of a uh, solution here, huh?
1: Betty's not killing her own goats. No,
0: Chris, so. <laughs> that is, <laughs> that, that much is clear.
1: I mean, go- I think goat and lamb can be thought of pretty much as interchangeable. They're not the same, but they, many people would have trouble distinguishing them once cooked from each other. Goat is a little leaner and often less meaty. That is, there's tends to be more meat on a given cut of, like a leg of lamb is bigger than a leg of goat mm-hmm. or meatier. Than. But I don't think, I think for all intents and purposes, they can be treated interchangeably. It's the same as any other animal in that there's prime cuts, so-called prime cuts and so-called less desirable cuts. And with those animals, I think the less desirable cuts are actually the more desirable cuts. So of course, leg of lamb. Leg is great and loin is great and ribs are great. A roast shoulder, which is a much less expensive cut than a leg usually, is so great. The neck and breast make the best stews ever. Lamb neck, for whatever reason, is stewed. I buy it all the time. Really? It's really terrific stuff. If you have—
0: And you get it separate—it's sort of separate from the shoulder. It's like it's yeah, its own it's cut. Bonier. Okay.
1: A really skilled butcher can bone a whole lamb neck for you and tie it up into a little roast, and that's a very special thing. Wow. You don't see that very no,
0: often. No, no.
1: Um, but neck is good. Breast is great. Shoulder. I think that the slow cooking—but then, of course, if you grill— the tender the more tender cuts of lamb they're also great. So I'm saying I like it all and I do. Um but I I guess if I had advice I'd say don't ignore those cheaper those cuts cuz they're really good. And also it is from every perspective of meat eating it's important to embrace it all. You know, not just eat the prime the so-called prime cuts cuz yeah. Should be should be sort of nose-to-tailing it
0: thing. Do you go for a specific kind of sort of sets of flavor profiles when it comes to lamb or goat? Like, are there certain kind of preparations? Like, let's say, like, with your roast shoulder, like, what, what kind of flavors are you going to apply in that situation?
1: I mean, roasting, I tend to sort of do things minimally. But stewing with lamb, I often wind up with sort of beans, tomatoes, garlicky kind of thing or the other direction that i've done even more in recent years is dried apricots Mm. nuts onion carrot kind of a, a middle eastern or or south asian kind of thing and then speaking of south asian of course lamb stew with indian type spices is really great also Full disclosure, since not everybody knows this, my partner runs a food and farming organization, and we live on the farm that's run by the organization. So we have this kind of meat raised. Right there. You know, if I go outside and look around, I could go find the sheep. So I was just talking to a guy about cooking for a party that we're having, and I, I was just... I just said, well, we really, we need to focus on lamb because the lamb is just the easiest and best thing. You also, the grillable cuts, the chops and the flap and the tenderloin, the loin, I mean, salt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like salt isn't, but sage is really good. Garlic is really good. But salt and wood fire, you're so in business.
0: Yeah. I find, you know, I do sometimes struggle with, like, the intensity of flavor, you know, of of lamb. But I I think because of that, I seek out flavors that are kind of equally strong. So if I were to do, like, a lamb shoulder, I'd, you know, often, like, I'll kind of serve it warm but kind of maybe shred it apart but pair it with, like, a very assertive, like, salad or something like that or kind of vegetable component. Mm. All right, um, our next question is a breakfast SOS and it's from a listener, Hayden. Hayden writes... I have two children, two and six months, who wake up in the morning starving. Problem is that I am, one, not a morning person, and two, not a breakfast person. Lately, breakfast has been causing me so much anxiety because I want to provide tasty and easy things for my family that don't take a bunch of effort. We do yogurt parfaits or blueberry muffins a lot, so I'm hoping to have a couple of additional breakfast options in rotation. If there's anything I can freeze and reheat quickly, that would be so great. I mean, yogurt parfait is yogurt parfait. More
1: complicated than what I do. I know. I mean, I'm like
0: blueberry muffins. Who's got time to make a muffin? I'm right. like, hey kids, here's your smoothie.
1: <laughs> right, a smoothie is good. I don't. I don't think about. I'm not gonna. Let's not go in the direction of encouraging Hayden to make things in advance and freeze them. Let's encourage Hayden to make oatmeal on the spot in 10 minutes and put peanut butter in it, which my kids always really liked, or peanut butter and maple syrup, which is still an 80% nutritious, Yeah, <laughs> you know, interesting breakfast.
0: We make steel-cut oats once a week, and then we have it on hand for the whole week, and we just right. reheat a little bit whatever morning anybody wants oatmeal.
1: Right. And you can do the same thing with brown rice or with quinoa yeah. or with anything you want. And you can cook that stuff in coconut milk and it'll be more interesting and definitely like and st- still stay for a week. Right. I think I have problems with this because I always ate savory breakfast and I never eat the same breakfast two days in a row. So,
0: yeah. The other thing too, I mean, you know, depending if my kids would eat this. Like, I love the convenience of a pancake or waffle mix, right?
1: Um, I'm going to argue with you about that, but go ahead.
0: (laughs) Okay. I mean, I'm doing what I can here. And often, you know, I'm making like a gluten-free buttermilk pancake mix, and it's not bad. And if I was living in a world in which I could put some cooked quinoa in there or some, you know, other cooked grains or anything in there to kind of punch it up a little bit even fruit the fact that i got my kids to eat blueberry pancakes was a little bit of like headline news in my world and so the more that i can use the the mix mainly as a just baseline kind of scaffolding but for other slightly more interesting mix-ins that's like a real win for me and i can it's that becomes something i can make like very quickly and very casually and it's not a a whole thing you know
1: I mean, I made pancakes for six from scratch. And I mean, the batter couldn't have taken more than seven minutes. And Mark. I was making it up on the fly. Oh. But I mean, come on. I want to be more helpful to Hayden, actually. I really do. <laughs> okay. So okay. You're, you're probably right. right. Take take pancake mix in and augment, it, augment or, it. Or don't take pancake Level it up. Or don't
0: take pancake and- mix, but but level it up.
1: Yeah, make it a little better.
0: I mean, what about eggs? I mean, like. No, oh,
1: well, what about eggs? You I've, know, which take literally
0: a minute. Well, there you have it, from the experts. Eggs are quick. We're going to take another break, and when we get back, Mark and I will answer a few more questions from our mailbag. Did you know that kids eat 1,095 meals every year each? Not even counting snacks. Honestly, being responsible for all those meals kind of sucks sometimes. But we've found a resource that actually helps and is funny too. Didn't I Just Feed You is a weekly podcast about feeding families hosted by two longtime food professionals, Stacey Billis and Megan Splon. These ladies are not afraid to be candid and get real because as working moms, they know how hard it is to feed a family night after night. They joined me on an episode of Dinner SOS, but their show covers this topic week after week. From how to turn nachos into a legit family dinner to the magic of meatballs, solving the afterschool snack problem to the mental load of being the family cook, they talk about it all, offering shortcuts, pro tips, pro tips, Techniques and recipes along the way. Find Didn't I Just Feed You wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. New episodes publish every Monday. You can also find Stacy and Megan on Instagram as at Didn't I Just Feed You. And we're back. We'll do a little bit more here. So this is from listener Ben. He asks, Here's the scenario. I plan to make dinner and throw my protein in a bag with some variety of oils, spices, alliums, herbs, etc. But sometimes my cooking plans change, and I'm wondering if there's a maximum time, outside of the protein going bad, of course, that the thing being marinated can sit and soak in it for. I've seen most recipes call for, at most, 12 hours or overnight marinating. So I'm wondering if anything bad happens beyond that.
1: I mean... You can't marinate fish for very long in anything acidic because it'll just cook. That's called ceviche. So that I wouldn't even think about. And shrimp and squid are a little different than fin fish, but I just don't see any need for more than an hour under any circumstances. So, but meat is different and you can do overnight. And if you can do overnight, you can do 24 hours, I think. But I I do think that after a while, and especially if there's acid in there, the meat is going to start to get mushy.
0: It gets mushy. Not
1: all the way through, but there's going to be like a layer of mushiness there if you marinate it for a really long time. It's not bad, but I think you'll notice it.
0: It's interesting. You know, I think one thing that I would want to break down for Ben is that, you know, certain marinades that have any type of acidity, whether it's, you know, a soft kind of like lactic kind of acidity of, of buttermilk or a more overt kind of like acidity coming from citrus like that, the clock is ticking once you introduce the meat to that. And the tougher the meat going in, the longer it can probably stand up to that sort of treatment. But I am kind of curious about this whole, the notion of, you know, marinating a protein in oil. He's mentioning oil and alliums. And to my mind, I would say like, I feel like there's very limited value in putting something in contact with oil. In But maybe you disagree in terms of just is the oil truly going to transport the flavor of other kind of things in the marinade in the same way that something with like a higher water or just something with like more salt content would?
1: I mean, I don't disagree. I think you could see the benefit of oil being a nice even. If you're throwing things in a bag, then you're going to get them distributed nicely if there's oil in Mm -hmm. there. It doesn't have to be a lot, but, you know, you're kind of greasing the surface I increasingly do what used to be called a dry marinade, which is like kind of chop up garlic and herbs with salt and rub that on something and might leave it open in the refrigerator for the better part of a day. I might do that in the morning and just leave that in the fridge during the course of the day. And the salt dries out a little bit, so it browns a little better. Maybe there's a little extra flavor. But if we started doing tastings of marinated things that were marinated for half an hour versus five hours versus 10 hours, I don't think we'd find a whole hell of a lot of difference.
0: Yeah, I feel like there are two types of wet marinades that I still turn to. I'd say like yogurt-based marinades or more of like a soy or oyster sauce kind of based marinade. I feel like there you do need some time to like have an appreciable benefit from that wet marinade. But I agree, it's like a few hours makes a difference and is maybe a good jumping off point for seeing some kind of difference. But generally speaking, you're not necessarily want to go more than overnight because it's going to show up as that kind of mushiness or mealiness, as you mentioned. We are getting to the end. We have a question from listener Alexandra who said, I'm trying to eliminate salmon from my diet due to sourcing and environmental concerns. However, mm. it's really the only fish I've ever felt comfortable cooking at home. When I've attempted cooking other fish dishes at home, such as tuna or cod, they just never turn out the way I'd hoped. I recently made a cod dish so terrible, so inedible, that I had to throw it away, which defeated God, the purpose. Cod. I'd like it's to hear happened. about that. Yeah. Um... It was so terrible, so inedible. Yeah, I had to throw it away, da-da-da. Do you have any recommendation for a substitute fish that I could use in my favorite salmon recipes? Or perhaps do you have any fish recipes that you think a home chef inexperienced with other fish species might be able to cook successfully? Advice for sourcing healthy, sustainable fish? She finds the seafood counter at the grocery store very intimidating. I have dreams of cooking delicious seafood dishes like the sole meniere that caused Julia Child to fall in love with French cooking, but after my recent experience with the cod dish, again, WTF happened, I'm feeling a bit deflated.
1: I mean, I wrote... You wrote the book. <laughs> I wrote the book. You know, salmon is a peculiar fish, and maybe Alexandra, you know, has developed such a affinity for salmon that everything else tastes weird yeah. or something. I mean, option A, order salmon from alaska frozen and eat that um because it's i mean yeah there's a bit of carbon footprint going on there obviously but it's great fish and if you're a salmon head seems like that might make you happy tuna you know the other two things she mentions tuna is actually not easy to cook so let's just put that aside for a second and but cod i don't know put it in a pot with some olive oil and olives and bay leaves and a some shallots or chopped onion and put a cover on it and cook it for 15 minutes and eat it. I mean, roast it in an oven until it's done, maybe with some sliced potatoes underneath it or some other vegetables. It's hard. There's like, first of all, there's like 20 good kinds of fish and there's, and then there's 500 ways of cooking each of them. So I would say the hardest thing about fish, especially for someone with this kind of presenting in this way, <laughs> Is the buying, but I I mean, I'd love to know what went wrong with that cod dish because I think that that Alexandra just doesn't like fish other than salmon yet, I would say yet.
0: Right. In my mind, here's what happened. Alexandra tried to cook cod the same way she cooks salmon, and salmon— You know, it has the fat and resilience to stand up to quite a bit of abuse. Especially
1: farmed salmon, which it sounds like she's been cooking. If you're
0: using like Atlantic farmed salmon, which is like the fattiest fish you can basically get, you know, you can basically overcook it and it's still, you know, fine. It's not great, but it's fine. You can sear it like mad and not dry it out the same way that you would dry out cod instantly, you know, by like overcooking it to a similar fashion. I mean,
1: I don't even think overcooked, dried out cod is that
0: terrible. I mean, no, no. Yeah, I mean, like salt cod, right? It's like you can bring it back. You soak it. You cook it. I mean, it still retains like that that j- sort of drier <laughs> presentation of flakiness, right? But I-, I love the idea, though, point being of like cooking cod like in more of like a wet cook method, right? Like what you described, like some alliums, some like right. tomatoes, some
1: olive oil, garlic, olive oil. white wine, bay leaves, oh, and olives. For, That's, I would about do that. Stop
0: trying to get everything friggin' crispy, you know, and like brown. Just that
1: for, just until you can stick a knife into the fish. And it just,
0: yeah, wants to just come apart. But I also love your idea, you know, the Alaska fisheries are, you know, probably not perfectly regulated, but they are regulated and they have an eye on sustainability. So you can feel at least, you know, quite a bit more justified in sourcing fish through those channels versus whatever might be at your local fishmonger on display. Frozen fish is great, you know, from a quality perspective, like frozen fish is being held in a in a state of fresh hibernation and it's by defrosting it yourself you know you really control that process
1: I think you're right buying frozen fish and defrosting yourself is not a bad way to go but I think that the supermarket it's very hard to feel comfortable at a supermarket seafood counter because you're you're never gonna know the person first of all the person there is not buying the the fish they're just like getting shipped what they get shipped yeah so any question you ask you're unlikely to get a satisfactory answer to so i think maybe the first thing in buying fish is to kind of know the person who's selling it mm-hmm. like spend the extra money and go to the fish person at the farmer's market or go to the person who owns a fish store in your neighborhood or buy fish by mail or online or whatever from a person who's actually dealt with the fishermen. And so on. And that, if you're comfortable with the sourcing, it's like anything else. Then you know you're starting with good product. And then the cooking is actually easier than the shopping. And then once you know what stuff looks like, what good fish looks like, you can actually go to the supermarket and pick it out. It's like, jumps out at you. But if you don't know that, then you're in trouble at the supermarket because you're likely to buy, or you might buy stuff
0: that's awful. I fully agree with that. Okay, you want to do one more? This is one more. Okay. From listener Megan. What are three main or staple ingredients I should be buying each season? What should I never buy out of season?
1: I mean, it's a great question. It's the right question. It's an important question, I think. I mean, some things are worse than others out of season, and it depends whether you're concerned about flavor or quality or carbon footprint or what. I really try to eat winter vegetables in the winter, with one exception, and that is in August and September. I buy... All the tomatoes I could fit in my freezer and I freeze them. And then I eat tomatoes all year long. Do
0: you do you process them or prepare them at all?
1: No. I put whole tomatoes in Ziploc bags and I put them in the freezer. And stop. It's awesome. That's it's, all you it's, do? That's all I do. It's awesome. Tomatoes and I'm doing and bags. Tomatoes and bags, fifty to seventy five pounds a year, and I finish them every year. <laughs> I never buy canned tomatoes anymore either. Wow. Almost never buy yeah. a fresh tomato out of season. But I have to admit that every now and then I go to a regular supermarket in the middle of the winter and buy, like, zucchini and broccoli and stuff. Because I'm
0: just, just craving it. But, I mean, broccoli, my gosh. Like, I would kind of consider it a winter vegetable. But that's yeah, probably it's true. not true, Well, if you true, live in though.
1: California, it certainly is. But, yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, interesting. Zucchini? You Um, crave zucchini in winter? I do. I
1: Just like (laughs) once a winter, I'm like, I gotta have some zucchini. (laughs) Zucchini? Um,
0: I thought you were going to be like, strawberries. um, It's the raspberries. um, Something. Uh, It's funny,
1: isn't it? It's really funny. But the putting away, I mean, people used to put away so many things.
0: You've got to have a chest freezer somewhere. Yeah, I
1: do. Um, Two. but, But truth be told... I have three, oh, and plus the well, freezer in my fridge. I have two freezers in the garage, and I have two freezers in the so-called pantry. But I, I do freeze—it's tomatoes, meat, fish, and I keep grains in the freezer now, too. And I do, a, I do a lot of baking, a lot of bread baking, so there's a lot of— Wow. And I eat whole grains, too, so there's a lot of sort of quinoa, <sighs> that kind of stuff I keep in the freezer. So Three chest freezers, the dream. I don't know. Yeah. What can I say?
0: I, you know, for my part, I would say I'm much more likely to eat vegetables out of season than I am fruit. Like fruit, I really try to stay somewhat within season because I just yeah. hardly ever think it's worth it to really be truly out of season when it comes to berries, stone fruit. And there's such great fruit in the winter. I mean, you know, kind of carbon footprint notwithstanding, you know, like citrus, tropical fruit, mango season, which kind of extends like quite a long time nowadays with better availability. I I, I love all that stuff. And... Yeah. But vegetables, I have a hard time sort of forcing myself, you know, to like only eat broccoli certain times of year or even string beans, which I know is like dumb and bad. Um, <laughs> but it's like, I just... I love them. I love braising them. I love roasting them. I love stir yeah. frying them, dry frying them. To be go that long without a green bean, I, it's just, you know, can go without like a strawberry. Like I, that is like fine. But it's like, that's my zucchini, clearly, you know, just give right. me the green beans, you know?
1: Right. It is your zucchini.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, listen, this was so fun, so fascinating to actually get to game some of the stuff out with you because I feel like, that's what really reveals like who somebody is you know as a cook and of course as a person as well and just so fun to have you on
1: i mean it is it is fun to just gab this stuff away i love it yeah we've had fun we should do it annually or more for sure would love that
0: If you have a dinner emergency or just a quick question, write to us at dinnersos at bonapetit.com or leave us a voice message at 212 286 SOS1. That's 212 286 7071. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on your podcast app of choice and hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. Dinner SOS is a Conde Nast Entertainment original podcast. I'm your host, Chris Morocco. My co-host this week is the great Mark Bettman. Our producer is Michelle O'Brien. Peyton Hayes is our associate producer. Cameron Foose is our assistant producer. Jake Loomis is our studio engineer. Amar Lal makes this episode. Next week, Rachel loves eating scallops, but making them at home feels impossible.
2: We have tried different recipes. We have tried different scallops. We have tried different pans. We cannot do it. And they're expensive.
0: They get you when you're at your weakest. You're in the supermarket. You're just trying to get out of there. And they're like, Daddy, can I get this? And it's like, right. the cocoa Bunnies, I don't know. It's an Annie's product. She wouldn't do me dirty on the friggin' bunnies. Right? I mean, if
1: you believe that, I have a bridge I'd like to sell you. There is uh, no Annie. Or there
0: was an uh, Annie maybe in the early uh, days, but... She, somebody somewhere has a rabbit, though, right? At Annie's? No. But somewhere, yes. Hey, listeners. Chris Morocco here. If you find yourself in a dinner crisis, the Epicurious app comes to the rescue. Not only will you unlock over 50,000 recipes from Bon Appetit and Epicurious, but you'll also receive daily personalized recommendations based on your unique preferences and dietary needs. Head to the Apple App Store and download the Epicurious app to kickstart your seven-day free trial today. Don't miss out on this culinary adventure. Start your free trial and let the Epicurious app be your kitchen hero. Happy cooking.